At this time, I want to invite each of you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Matthew's Gospel. As we read the words of our Lord in this Gospel, the first Gospel, from chapter 7, verses 24 to 27, it's important to remember that these words are the last words, the last recorded words of the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus has just given one of his three big periods of teaching in, that are recorded for us. And this is his concluding statement. And it's the exclamation point at the end of all that he has said. And so we read... The words of our Lord as thus. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God for us. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much for your word. That you have given it to us. That you have given us life by it. That you give us a standard. That you give us encouragement. That you give us hope. Yea, even discipline you give to us through your word. Lord, grant that even now our hearts would be drawn to it, that we would take seriously all that is within it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so here we are as we embark upon our Reformation 2021 series and if you recall, if you were around last year, you know that we did a survey of the solas. And so we spent one week on each of the five sola statements that have been sort of gathered and summarized the, the teaching of the Reformation. And so what we're doing this year then is instead of simply surveying the solas, we're going to take one sola and then kind of drill down on it. And over the course of the next several weeks, we're going to look at more in depth what we mean when we talk about this specific sola statement. And it's important that we bear in mind at the outset that when we talk about any of these sola statements, I keep using the word sola. S-O-L-A, the Latin word that means only or alone. And when we think of the sola statements, that word sola really is the, the emphasis point. 
It's what needs to be underlined, underscored, bold, type font. In the words of R.C. Sproul, it is no exaggeration to say that it, the eye of the Reformation tornado was the little word sola. Why is that? Well, let's take the phrase sola scriptura, which in English translates to scripture alone. Take away the sola part and, okay, scripture. Well, go back to the Reformation time and then just as now, the existing church that was, that we know now as the Roman Catholic Church, the, the Bible means something to them. So the question was not, is the Bible important? Is the Bible an authority? The question became, what is the final authority? And so at the time of the Reformation, the church's position then as now was and is that when it comes to final authority, you have two. You have scripture, which is an authority, and you have tra sacred tradition, which is the collected teachings and practices of the church as codified and understood by the Pope and his magisterium. That is the collection of cardinals, the high church officials around him, who are the final arbiters of truth. Sounds complicated. But really it means, functionally it means, that whenever you read something in the Bible, you have to fact check it against whatever the church happens to be teaching to determine and find out what is truth. And Martin Luther was like, no, no, and no. The Bible alone is our final authority. When we think of the Reformation, it's true that the what we call the material cause was the answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? If you think about Martin Luther and, and his existential crisis he was going through, it was that he was pervasively burdened by guilt. How can I be made right with God? And so the, question, the answer to that question is that he's justified by grace alone through faith alone. And so when we speak of causes of something, the material cause, that's the, the, the thing that made up the Reformation, was, the, was answering that question. And it was really a recovery of the gospel. In his early years, Martin Luther wanted to hammer home that point, that we are justified by grace alone through faith alone. But he very rapidly, in debate after debate, early debate, he kept getting pinned against the wall. Why? Because it was really a question of authority. Who gets to say how one is justified? Who gets to determine what one must do to be made right with God? And so 
Luther was very quickly shown to be in conflict with the official position of the church. And that became troublesome. That was really what led the Roman uh, uh, ecclesial authority to turn on him real quick. Because they will stand all sorts of deviancy, but you cannot be in opposition to the chain of command. You must kiss the ring, so to speak. And so Martin Luther then quickly understood that the formal cause of the Reformation, that is, the thing that provides the blueprint, is Scripture. So when we speak of the Reformation, you will oftentimes hear of the doctrine of sola scriptura being the, being the, the formal cause of the Reformation. Formal cause means it is providing the map forward, the blueprint, the building design. Everything that the Reformation did and accomplished was to be derived from Scripture alone. That's why we talk about it first. Because if Scripture is not the final authority, then whatever else we may say Ultimately, so what? The Bible alone is our final authority. But the question as then, what, as it was then, is now a matter of the desire for what we would call epistemological certainty. How can I know? How can I know that I know? That question, that drive, that desire to know, to, to feel secure in, in, the, in knowing and believing that I have an apprehension of what is true is strong in people. In fact, it drove a lot of the philosophers of the early Enlightenment period nuts. Think of Rene Descartes. In the early 1600s, what's his famous dictum? I think, therefore, I am. He, his quest for, for epistemological certainty had him questioning everything until finally he got to the point that, an unbeaking, that a thinking being must exist. So I think, therefore, I must exist. And from there, he tried to recreate a sense of balance and authority and understanding things. And to this day, when a Protestant converts to Rome, it's not usually because they found some insight in the Bible. It's usually whenever they, they, they convert, they, they typically love to become, I don't know, anti-Protestant apologists or something. And, and they typically write about their frustrations with, with apparent not knowing and what they love about Rome is that in Rome, they have an unquestionable authority who they can just sit. And when they hear an answer from that authority, that's the final answer. And people feel safe with that. But it's not just religious certainty. We love having someone tell us how to think, how to do. And so, in the Bible, 
What we have as the Protestant teaching of Sola Scriptura is not a repudiation of all authority. What we have is the elevation and the distinction of something that is unique from everything else, however helpful it may be. It is good and right to have authorities, but at the end of the day, only one thing can be the ultimate arbiter of truth. And only one thing can claim to be the word of God. And that is scripture. It's important when you're talking to people that we understand that sola scriptura is not saying there are no other authorities. For example... We have this thing called the BCO, the Book of Church Order. It tells us how many members we need present to have a quorum. Uh, it, it tells us how many elders we must have to, to have a church, etc. It's an authority. It's something that we have to submit to. But it's not our ultimate authority. Our ultimate authority is, is this and only this. And whenever and wherever a point of one of our subordinate authorities is shown to be out of accord with this, it is the subordinate authority that must be brought in line. That's what it looks like to have a final authority in the word of God. And Rome would say the church gave you the Bible. And we would say, actually, the Bible claims to be the word of God. All humans did was acknowledge what it is. Do you see the difference? We acknowledge what it is. We don't decide that it is. You see, the word of God, as we'll hear more in a moment, is living and active. It uniquely is attended by the Spirit in such a way that its authenticity is, what we would say, self-authenticating. Which means I can give you all the apologetics in the world, but at the end of the day, it, it's, its authenticity, its legitimacy as the Word of God is not determined by the arguments I'm able to muster. It is what it is because it is what it is. And believers hear the voice of their Savior in it. When Jesus says that I'm the great shepherd and my sheep hear my voice and they follow me, what, what are they hearing? They're hearing the word proclaimed. The word is attended by the living God. Thus it is uniquely suited to be the final authority. I remember when I was in my formative years, I, hung, I was more acquainted with, with, uh, with, with liberal mainliners. Um, and, and they would say that, that we were bibliolaters. Your, your insistence on following the word, you're worshiping the Bible. You ever heard that? You're worshiping the Bible. And these individuals, these churches, these traditions that have long since abandoned the Bible were telling me that I'm worshiping the Bible. Well, we're not worshiping the Bible per se. 
We're not worshiping it at all. But there is nothing which the Lord says that he has exalted to a higher place than his name and his word. Write that down. That's Psalm 138, verse 2. You have exalted above all things your name and your word. You see, you cannot say anything about God. Anything about God. Apart from what we know from his word. What about general revelation? Do you want to know why we know that there's such a thing as general revelation? Because it's in the word. Human sinfulness is such that even the reality of general, general revelation is, is lost to them and they only will be perceiving their, they will only be experiencing guilt because even though they have access to general revelation, they deny it and it's only in the pages of scripture that we learn that that sense of wonder you get when you look at the Grand Canyon is there by design. The word of God is the authority and it's been elevated above all things to be our guide, to be our trustworthy source of hope, our trustworthy source of conviction, our trustworthy source of life. And that brings us to our passage. In Matthew 7, after Jesus delivers his Sermon on the Mount, the first of three big teaching sections in the Gospels, He's given them a lot of info. He, he's done a lot of, of earth-shattering teaching here. And he concludes it with a statement about the authority of his words. The reliability, the trustworthiness, the accuracy of all that he has said. And in, in an inimitable Jesus style, he makes his point by making use of a word picture that we can all visualize even though he said this 2,000 years ago, we still can see the picture. Two guys, two men, two buildings, two foundations, two outcomes. And everything was determined by what foundation they built upon. And what Jesus is saying is ultimately, there are only those two foundations. His words, and anything, something, everything else. Only Jesus' words, the words of Scripture, the words of God, are the proper foundation for one's identity, life, and living. That's what it means to build a house when Jesus is saying this. He's talking about the edifice that is a life. Your identity, who you are, how you should live, and what you should do. And so the basis of Sola Scriptura then is, as Jesus says in Matthew 7, he says, anyone who hears these words of mine, the basis of Sola Scriptura is that it is the word of God. Scripture is the word of God which is to point then to its inspiration. 
When we speak of scripture, we're not just talking about a bunch of religious writings that a bunch of religious people thought sounded profound. We are talking about words that were penned by men who were inspired. And by inspired, we refer, we mean what Peter means in 2 Peter 1.21 when he says they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit did not just marionette puppet control someone to write. The person is sitting there, ah, ah, and the writing's taking, no. We mean this mysterious process by which the Holy Spirit worked in and through that person. So that way their personality remained intact. You can see the difference in personality between Paul and John. You can see the difference of learning style. The, the Greek used by the author of Hebrews is much more advanced than even Paul's. And especially than any of the gospel writers with the exception maybe of Luke. You can see that the personalities and perspectives of each man was kept intact, but still, every word comes from the Lord. And so when we speak of the inspiration of Scripture, you, ought, you perhaps have heard it referred to as the, the verbal plenary inspiration. You ever heard that phrase? Verbal plenary inspiration. When we say verbal, what we're meaning is the very words are the words God wanted written down. And we oftentimes second guess this. We, we get frustrated that God didn't have, in, have written down the word that we want used. The words that God wanted written down are the words that were written down. Jesus affirms this, that inspiration extends to the smallest little pinstroke of Scripture. When in the great Sermon on the Mount that we just learned earlier on in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, he, he says as much when he says that he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them, and that till heaven and earth pass away, not so much as, to use the King James, a dot or a tittle. And a one iota, nothing, not the smallest letter. So all of it is inspired. And that plenary refers to all of it from Genesis to Revelation. We love, love, love the parts of Scripture that affirm us and make promises to us. We love that stuff. Oh man, I can eat that up all. Psalm 23, I could read all day, every day. Eh, we don't tend to find so much use for the warnings. We hardly have use for the for some of the commandments, the instructions, especially when they're countercultural. Ooh, we have a hard time accepting that. But the fact of the matter is all of it is inspired. All of it, because it is God's word then, is authoritative. The consequence then of it being the word of God, 
of it being inspired, of all of it from Genesis to Revelation, being the word of God is that it is living and active. We learn this in Hebrews chapter 4. That the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to separate even what is apparently indivisible so that it can discern and determine between the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Brothers and sisters, do you know, do you know what that means? It means this is truly truth for life. It means it, it applies to you. This means you can base your, your life on it. When you're going through hardship, the promises and assurances of it you can bank on. The, the commandments are sure. That, that's the teaching of Psalm 119 over and over is that the purpose of the commandments of God are not to be a burdensome party pooper type thing. No. It, it, it's rules to live by. And his warnings are, are certain too. So this means that when we see our friends and our loved ones around us who, who don't believe well, the word of God is still true, even though they don't believe. And, and, and so we believe, and so we must share and tell. Because all of it is true. Many of us know and love the, the old song, Jesus Loves Me. It's a great source of encouragement. Jesus loves me. This I know. How do you know? For the Bible tells me so. You want to grow in your faith? You want to grow in your appreciation of God's promises and God's goodness to you? Then read the word. It is the final authority. So when it says that in Christ you have been made set free, then you're free. When it says that by grace through faith you have been made right with God and that there is therefore now no condemnation, then guess what? You're free. And you're justified. When it tells us that he's prepared in a great inheritance for us, but yet you feel so mundane. What, what, what's your final authority? Your feelings? Or the word? Brothers and sisters, the Reformation was built on the premise that the word of the living God is our final authority. And as you appropriate this into your life, you will find your faith strengthened exponentially. Next week, we will learn more about why we need the Bible. Why we need Sola Scriptura. Let's pray.